Hello, Daryl. How are you doing? And thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. So what made you write this book, Turning Point Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence? AI is taking off. It is everywhere. In fact, since we uh, did that book a couple of years ago, it really has expanded even more dramatically. I mean, it's really being deployed in every sector, uh, finance, healthcare, transportation, retail, national defense. So there's a lot of interest in it, a lot of opportunities, but a lot of problems have popped up as well. What first got you interested in AI? I mean, I've been interested in digital technology for many years. Uh, AI is the transformative technology that I think is driving a lot of the digital innovation that's taking place uh, right now. Like, you know, people are following the issue of autonomous vehicles. Uh, that is really an AI thing. Uh, you can't really have uh, those uh, types of things without AI applications. Uh, when you look at some of the generative AI uh, things, such as ChatGBT, uh, where there's been a lot of discussion over the last uh, few weeks, uh, that is all AI-driven. Uh, so AI is just interesting as a subject matter of the algorithms are getting more and more sophisticated. They're being deployed uh, much more frequently. Uh, AI is actually becoming ubiquitous in ways people don't even realize. All right, well, let's just go back then. Because, I mean, my introduction to technology was a ZX Sinclair Spectrum followed by an Atari 400. Where did you start? I started with, uh, I think, one of the uh, first personal computers in the mid-1980s. I actually did my dissertation on a typewriter. So when these <laughs> crazy things of word processors, processors that came along, it was like, wow, this is great. It's like you can keep editing to your heart's end without having to retype the document, which was the case uh, on my uh, dissertation. I mean, there were changes I wanted to make in my dissertation, but I never wanted to type the thing all over again. So I love the uh, concept of word processors. And of course, uh, over the last 30 to 35 uh, years, we've now seen you know amazing advances in digital technology. So how did that progress into your studies then? What did you do at college? So I studied political science, uh, so I spent a lot of time uh, analyzing campaigns and elections. And as campaigns became more media-oriented, I got interested in kind of the media angle on politics. And then technology started to come into the media space and the campaign uh, space, so I kind of migrated into technology. So there was a logical transition uh, there. And I'd say for the last uh, 20 years, I've really... Uh, focused uh, a lot of my efforts on understanding uh, technology, kind of seeing how it's being employed, uh, and then also just trying to figure out what are the problems uh, that are popping up as a result of a technology and what can we do about some of those issues. And your book breaks it down into different sectors. I know we've only got limited time, so perhaps we could touch on those sectors. And one of the first ones is healthcare. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of technology come into healthcare. And COVID, of course, really accelerated uh, that trend. Uh, I know in the United States, telemedicine has taken off. Like oftentimes, if I have a simple issue to talk about with my uh, doctor, it's a video conference as opposed to uh, physically going into his office. Uh, there are a lot of AI applications in terms of figuring out new vaccines, new treatments, uh, new medications. It turns out that the way scientists develop new medications is to read the scientific literature, look at chemical compounds, and try and figure out 
old chemicals that can be employed in new ways to uh, treat illnesses. It turns out AI and machine learning actually are really good at reading the scientific uh, literature. They can read it faster and more efficiently than we can. And so people are now using AI to kind of figure out what are novel chemical compounds and how can they be used to treat various kinds of illnesses. Wow. How has AI helped neuroscience advance? Uh, we're seeing a lot of technology in just in trying to figure out uh, the brain, uh, you know, the use of uh, CAT scans, uh, looking at uh, brain waves, kind of seeing how people, people's brains react in different types of uh, situations. I mean, there have been huge advances just in terms of our understanding of the brain. You know, it turns out that there are a lot of problems that people used to view as personal problems or emotional problems that actually are turning out to be brain problems. You know, it's the neurotransmitters that either are firing too rapidly or not firing rapidly enough that actually are responsible for a lot of the things that people used to view as just somebody's emotional problems. So I think people have a, a much better understanding now of how the brain is functioning and how it is linked to the way that we perceive certain things and then react to those situations. So what do you think about Elon Musk's proposal then to put electronic things into people's brains? Uh, I am certainly not going to be a volunteer to be the first person to uh, engage in that. Uh, I'm a little worried about kind of the brain uh, interfaces uh, there and just how that can be used. But I do think the one area where we are starting to see very useful applications is for uh, people who have visual impairments. You know, it turns out that if you have a hearing impairment or a visual impairment, there actually are brain implants that can help you see and hear. And so I think that is kind of an area where we're going to see really accelerate uh, in the coming years. And then I think everybody's going to watch that and see, okay, you know, is there something here other than crazy applications that actually can uh, benefit uh, people? And if we start to see good uses of uh, brain interfaces in that area, then it might make it, it might start to uh, diffuse more generally in other areas. So is AI playing a role in life extension? I'm sure there are scientists that are using it in their analysis. Uh, I haven't really followed that area in particular uh, detail, so uh, I can't uh, comment in detail on that. But in general, AI is kind of helping scientists track a lot of different things analyze information, uh, kind of figure out uh, how to make sense of various types of patterns. Sometimes algorithms can see patterns that are not immediately obvious to human beings. And could AI be used in education? AI is being used in many different ways in education. I know in the United States, a lot of colleges are using it to uh, figure out their admissions patterns and also how to manage their yield like they admit a certain number of students but they're trying to figure out like who's actually going to show up and you know most colleges have a magic number of they want a certain number of acceptances but not too many like they don't want to end up with a lot more students uh, than they can actually house and educate but then they also don't want to end up with too few uh, students so we're seeing a lot of colleges kind of use AI to integrate information from uh, different sources and then, to f and then to make predictions on the likelihood that somebody who's been accepted to a university actually is going to go there.
So are you still a professor, Daryl? I am no longer a professor. I taught political science and public policy for 26 years at Brown University. But then in 2008, I moved to Washington, D.C. and have been working at the Brookings Institution, a research think tank. Uh, so I gave up tenure at Brown uh, to come to uh, Brookings, and it's actually been great. I, I love being in D.C., and I love uh, the work that we're doing here. Could AI make professors redundant? Well, there's going to be a lot of AI that comes into the knowledge sector in general, uh, both in useful and very problematic sorts of ways. But, you know, the AI that we're already seeing uh, in terms of ChatGBT, uh, BARD, and other applications is actually very good at collecting information, analyzing information, interpreting information, and writing up the results. And, you know, that's exactly the kind of work the students are doing, research assistants are doing, and even professors are doing. So when I talk with my former academic colleagues, I tell them, you better keep an eye on this because this is going to have ramifications for how you do your job. I don't think professors are going to get replaced anytime soon, but you could see a situation where professors are using AI to augment their activities. And then at some point, the AI gets good enough that it at that point may actually start replacing uh, professors. Because, you know, the nice thing about uh, AI is it can help personalize education to the needs of individual students. Ideally, we want humans to be able to do that. But, you know, if a professor is teaching a class with 100 students, you know, it's hard to personalize it for every student there, whereas AI can actually personalize it uh, to those individual students. Like everybody has a different way of learning uh, and AI can kind of adjust to the way a person likes to get information and develop kind of learning modules that are really good for particular types of individuals. Yeah, and you could ask your AI a question, couldn't you, any time of the day rather than mithering your professor? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the answers are getting more and more sophisticated, uh, more and more uh, detailed. Uh, students, I know, we know from uh, surveys and, uh, and uh, articles uh, are starting to use uh, AI to write their papers. When I talk to young people, I discourage them from uh, doing that because the stuff that I have seen, I think the AI can write like a B-level paper, but not an A-level paper. Uh, the generative AI still has kind of a Wikipedia uh, style content to it, meaning it's a little generic. It's certainly not, uh, I think, exceptionally uh, creative. Uh, so it's good for kind of routine uh, tasks, uh, but it's still not as good as the human brain. So, Daryl, you mentioned being in a human think tank. Is there such a thing as an AI think tank where multiple AIs can get together and discuss and uh, come well, up with something? There aren't AI-based think tanks as of right now, uh, but I know a lot of places are, are thinking about how to use it to help uh, researchers uh, compile information and analyze the information. So uh, I would not worry about uh, algorithms uh, taking over uh, think tanks or research institutes, but you know, the AI is actually good at analyzing information. So it is going to have ramifications for the knowledge sector in general. What's the difference between AI and algorithms? Uh, algorithms are the way, the primary way in which AI operates. So AI basically develops a series of software instructions in which it analyzes a situation 
And then it's a series of if-then statements, like if certain conditions are met, then it will uh, analyze uh, things in a certain uh, way. So the algorithm is really the essence of the AI. It's just the algorithms are now getting more and more complicated. You know, I'd say 10 years ago, algorithms tended to be much shorter and simpler. Uh, now they may have thousands or millions of parameters, and the algorithm is able to kind of integrate all those parameters and uh, make some decision or reach some conclusion uh, based on those parameters. So we're on YouTube and we're always hearing about the algorithm censoring people or the algorithm putting a certain channel out of favor or another channel in favor. I mean, like, how does that work? Algorithms are definitely making choices. They are elevating certain content and either not elevating other content or rejecting other types of uh, content. So that's definitely true on YouTube. Uh, it's true on uh, the social media uh, platforms. Like they are making decisions all the time on your behalf to basically show you particular content or to suppress uh, particular kinds of uh, content. So if you go into the algorithm, basically it is making decisions. So for example, a lot of the search engines rely on what they call trusted sources of information, which often are more conventional and establishment uh, types of uh, information. So you know, well-known newspapers are an example that the algorithms generally do treat as a trusted source of uh, information. Uh, Brookings, as a leading think tank, often ends up on a list of a trusted a source of information. So the human programmers are basically taking the biases that are common today, you know, that you can trust a newspaper more than you might trust an obscure website that nobody has heard of and incorporating that in the algorithm. But you're right in the premise of your question that it's making choices and it's making uh, value uh, propositions and some content is being privileged and other content is not being privileged. So can that be tweaked by the programmers then to have a political bias or could the artificial intelligence itself just develop a bias independently? Well, the coders are now making the choices on behalf of the algorithm. I mean, it's interesting, uh, when Elon Musk took over Twitter, uh, he actually made public some of the parameters and how they are weighting uh, different types of things. And I know when I'm on Twitter now, it seems like every 20th post that I'm reading is actually from Elon Musk. Like I get his content all the time, even though I don't particularly like uh, his uh, content. And it turns out that when he published the weighting scheme, like anything that he tweets is weighted a hundred times what anybody else does, which explains why his content is uh, appearing so frequently in uh, people's uh, things. But, you know, his programmers are also making decisions to uh, weight certain voices or certain organizations more heavily than others. So the algorithm is definitely making choices and that affects the content that you see. Are there ways to outsmart the algorithm such as the YouTube algorithm? You can outsmart it in some respects. So for example, in the early days of Google when they were developing their search engine, one of the things that they noted as a weighting factor was if your website is linked to a number of other websites, they took that 
as evidence of good faith and interest in what you are doing. And that would elevate your site in its search recommendation and end up uh, leading to more recommendations of your site. So, you know, if your site is basically connected with other sites, other sites are linking to you, they take that as an evidence of authority and credibility, and that will lead uh, to uh, a higher uh, uses. I've noticed uh, in my own experience with uh, YouTube, I mean, we uh, post uh, videos as well, that if I post it on YouTube and then I immediately post it to my Facebook page and the Facebook page is generating a lot of views on that, then basically that then encourages YouTube, uh, the YouTube algorithm to then elevate the content because it looks like there are a lot of people looking at it. And if a lot of people are looking at it, then it concludes, oh, then we should start recommending it. So, you know, there are little tricks that one can play at the margins, but you know, the algorithm is going to operate the way it has been programmed to operate. So let's say the algorithm is programmed to operate in a way that detects certain words that penalizes a video. Could somebody play the system by identifying those words and changing those words, saying the same thing, but just using something that the algorithm doesn't recognize? You could do that, or you could use words that you know algorithms tend to like. Uh, and so we know that algorithms are discouraging hate speech, violence, exploitation of other people, uh, and things like that. So you should definitely avoid uh, those uh, types of things. Uh, I encountered an example of this. Uh, my wife runs a theater, and she put on a play about Prague in 1945 and kind of the post-Nazi era uh, regime. Uh, that was uh, uh, taking place uh, there. And in, on our Facebook page, we noted uh, that this play was kind of exploring the aftermath of the Nazi occupation. And Facebook took down the post on the grounds that we had mentioned Nazis in, in there, even though we were obviously not endorsing Nazism, but we were criticizing and kind of looking at what happened in Prague in the aftermath of World War II. But the algorithm just saw the word Nazi and basically said, okay, we're going to take down uh, this uh, post. And a friend of mine said that I should uh, appeal to Facebook to get that reversed. And I said, no, it's actually more advantageous for us from a marketing standpoint to claim that Facebook was censoring us uh, than to try and get them to reinstate us. And we actually got a lot of play because they were trying to censor uh, the play. Well, that's one way to take advantage of it. But... You said to use words that the algorithm likes. Do you have a list of such words? I mean, I don't have a precise uh, list, uh, <laughs> but we know that since the algorithms are sensitive to extreme content, that avoiding words that would be associated with extremist appeals, uh, extremist rhetoric, uh, calls for violence, like, you know, if like those are going to activate an algorithm and potentially end up uh, taking down uh, your uh, content. So I'm sure the reverse of that is probably true as well, that, you know, there are human values that are probably widely shared uh, that an algorithm is going to like. So uh, either in the title that you use to uh, describe the video or the podcast or whatever, or in the description that you use, like people need to think carefully about that because it's not just your viewers who are going to be looking at it, but the algorithm is going to be analyzing that. Like, is this good content or not so good content? 
Yeah, I spoke to my YouTube rep and he said, we've got everything that YouTube hates. And because we're a true crime channel, mostly. So we've got violence, sex, child abuse, drugs. And YouTube hates all this stuff. So on that basis now, I'm going to set up a family channel. And I believe that family channels are everything <laughs> that YouTube loves. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. If there's no algorithmic strangulation. But you um, know, algorithms also are sensitive to public engagement. So even if you have those subject matters, like if a lot of people are watching it, which seems to be the case uh, with your podcast, it's going to weight public engagement in the recommendation and still recommend content, even if it might even if it might be suspicious of the content. It's view. It's kind of crowdsourcing it. Like if a lot of people are watching it and liking it and sharing it, then that's going to increase the recommendation engine. Oh, it's interesting. So. You can override the content uh, problems by having quick engagement. Is that what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. Because remember, these are commercial companies that are wanting to make money. The way that they're making money is through public engagement. So if a lot of people are watching, liking, and sharing the content, it's going to elevate that content, even if there might be objectionable material in that information. This is fascinating, Daryl. We've only got about five minutes left. And uh, I want to give the viewers an opportunity to ask you some questions. So if anyone's got anything, put it, put it in the chat. Um, we've got a question here from VBUK. Can AI have any nuance? AI is getting more nuanced. I would not say it it has achieved a high degree of nuance. It is much better at routine thing than uh, than the things that require advanced cognitive reasoning uh, behind it. It's good at kind of compiling uh, basic information, but you know if it's like a scientific article with a lot of analysis, lots of interpretation, and a lot of nuance, the AI is still not that good at those uh, types of things. It is getting better because the training data on which it is being uh, trained is kind of allowing it to learn as it goes along. So probably within, you know, one to two years, uh, the generative AI then is going to be far superior to even what we have right now. Question from Ray J. Where did the AI idea come from and who funded its development? I'm not sure who funded it, but it the idea of AI actually goes back to the 1950s when people were, you know, computers were starting to come in then and people were speculating, like, could a computer actually learn and develop independent judgments? And there were scientists that basically said, yeah, like our current computers don't have that capability, but in the future, one could imagine that taking place. And they coined the term artificial intelligence to describe uh, that type of activity. Now, it took decades to kind of reached the point where we are today where we actually do have algorithms that have the ability to learn and are exercising independent judgment and making recommendations uh, to your uh, viewers. Uh, but the whole concept goes back to the 1950s. Jake has asked, could AI become self-aware? Well, that is the big existential question. Uh, the good news in the short run is Based on the technology we have now, the answer is no. We're nowhere uh, near uh, close to uh, that kind of uh, self-awareness. 
But, you know, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, you know, if you imagine kind of exponential advances in the technology, could it reach that point? You know, the answer to that has to be yes. Uh, we have to uh, think about that as a, a reasonable uh, possibility. But it's not something that keeps me up uh, at night uh, now because uh, although the technology is getting better and better, like we're nowhere near that type of self-awareness that people worry about. Question from Ray J. Have you seen the recent story about AI drone? Final decision is human controlled. Drone decided to attack human controller. Is that a true story? Uh, I've not followed that in particular uh, details. I, I don't think the AI has that type of uh, capabilities uh, now. You know, we're not kind of a uh, space oddity uh, 2001 situation where Hal is going to turn on his uh, human uh, programmers. We still are in a situation where we can always unplug the machine or take out its uh, battery pack and it's going to collapse into uh, nothingness. Uh, so I'm not super worried about that scenario. I know you've got a lot to say on ethical safeguards and responsible AI, but we've only got about two minutes left. So let's let's uh, finish on, on this question. What's your thoughts there? Uh, we certainly need to do a much better job of, of incorporating ethics in the product development and the product deployment. I mean, right now, we've delegated almost all the major decisions to private companies. They develop whatever products they want. They sell them. Uh, wherever they want. We need to change that. We need more human guardrails in place. We need more public oversight. We need more regulation. At brickings.edu, we write a lot about these uh, topics, but we definitely uh, need to make sure that we can direct the technology towards human values as opposed to corporate values, economic values, or authoritarian values. We Someone slipped the final question in. A Nexus, thank you. Is AI the ghost in the machine? Could spirit boxes detect it? I'm not sure I understand that question. Uh, so I don't know if you have any further information on that. AI, um, Anexus, if you could expand on that. And in the meantime, someone else. Um, in someone's hands, though, if they don't turn off, um, some of these things are armed now. They're on about AI. Um, this is a separate subject matter. AI being used in, in uh, weapons like uh, AI, robot, police dogs. We've got that, haven't we now? Yeah, AI is being incorporated in uh, the military. The U.S. government has a policy of keeping humans in the loop on making decisions on firing drones. So we don't have fully autonomous drones that have their own ability to make decisions on uh, killing someone. But not every nation around the world has that policy. So it's something we should be talking about internationally. Like we should not have independent drones that can fire on its own command as opposed to a human watching the video feed and pulling the trigger. Wow, fascinating. Okay, Daryl, please let the viewers know where they can find you, support you, get your book. Uh, our work is free and online at brookings.edu. We have a, a blog called Tech Tank and a podcast series also called Tech Tank, where we write and talk regularly about digital technology policy issues. Well, thanks. For, this has been so fascinating. I'm going to go away now and maybe change some of my YouTube strategies after speaking to you. So we salute your work, Daryl. Thank you very much. Cheers from London. You have a great rest of your day. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye.